Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here, but much, much more importantly, legendary record exec, and they call him Ronnie Records for a reason, and is uh, uh, there's no one who's uh, had, had a more uh, impressive career that, uh, that I can think of right off the top of my head than this man. He's signed folks like Michael uh, Jackson and Charlie Daniels and so, so much more. Ron Alexenberg, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Frank, for, uh, as always, that wonderful introduction. You have an amazing brain, and uh, I'm glad you still remember me. Yeah, are you kidding? I, listen, I, and, and one of the people I want to talk to you about today is somebody that I had the honor of meeting uh, through you, and, and we did an interview, and probably one of his last interviews, if not his last interview, is you know, it was a little while ago, and it was the late, great Sid Bernstein, who he lived into his 90s, and uh, he'll forever be known as the folks, uh, as, as the man who brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium and, and a lot more than that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Sid Bernstein and, and really uh, the impact he had on, on promotion here, you know, concert promotion and everything else. Well, it, it's good that uh, somebody like you would uh, sit and remember him. He has passed recently. He did make it to 90, and uh, he was a wonderful father, a wonderful husband, uh, lived in Manhattan, and uh, he, along with uh, Brian Epstein, he went to England, to Liverpool, and he met the Beatles, and he said, gee, I think uh, it'd be good to bring them to the United States. And he was the one that brought them to the United States. He brought them to Shea Stadium. He brought them to the Ed Sullivan Show, and it was so ironic that uh, when I was sitting with his wonderful wife and kids and we were reminiscing in his apartment on 72nd Street, there was a, uh, she showed me a shoebox, Frank, and you and I can relate to this, and in that shoebox was a bunch of unused tickets to Shea Stadium for the Beatles. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And would you like to know the price tag on those tickets? How much? The top seat was seven dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> I wonder what you get on you eBay from would, right now. What, what do you think they would charge now if you were bringing the Beatles? I mean, you know what wow. ticket prices are now. But let me talk to you about the man. This was a man that not only uh, people talk Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. He also managed the Rascals, uh, the Young Rascals. He took them off a barge, and uh, they, uh, Good Lovin', became uh, you know one of the classic songs of all time. Uh, Felix Cavallari and Denny and the Boys. And he also partnered up with a phenomenal man who also recently passed, Jerry Weintraub. And, uh, you know, Jerry is so well known for his movies and managing John Denver and Bob Dylan and Neil Diamond. And Sid was a part of all of that. And the thing that also people didn't get a real chance to get to know him unless you were with him is he was a great eater, a great, as we say in the Jewish way, presser. He would he would know from food like you cannot believe. And yes, he was a rather rotund individual and and proud of the fact that he would describe food. You could eat a meal and then ask him, hey, have you ever been to, and I'd name a restaurant to him, I named my favorite Italian restaurant, Don Pepe's out in Ozone Park, and he said, I've never been there. What is it like? And I said, Sid, we just ate. We just finished dinner. What do they have as a specialty? And I would describe it, and he would say, when can we go? And I said, well, do you want to go tomorrow? Yes, let's go. <laughs> and 
And right. when we got out there and we ate, he then looked at me and he said, I'm not so sure they have good desserts here. Let's go back to Manhattan. I know a great place where, uh, you know, and, and I, yeah, okay, and we'd go back into the city. But he would talk music. He would talk people. He would talk songs. He would talk comfort. When you were with him, you were comfortable. And it wasn't like high pressure, high power. I never heard the man curse. I never heard the man uh, get demonstrative. Um, and he was a very special person, and he has a book out uh, that I brought to you when I brought him to Ohika, and you were so good to interview him. And I do believe, Frank, now that you mention it, you were probably one of the few, last few interviews he did. Yeah, well, listen, it's again, it was an honor, and we're talking about the late, great Sid Bernstein, uh, along with uh, a wonderful record executive Ron Alexenberg, and he's uh, he's been around so many talented people. Uh, but so often we don't talk about the people who find that talent or who, who promote that talent. And l let's go back, uh, you know, a little bit of his uh, a little bit of Sid Bernstein's history. Um, and, and again, it was uh, it, it, it's it's exciting. I mean, I got chills. It was like meeting, you know, I don't know. It's meeting, uh, you know, I, I was going to say Mickey Mantle, but more like. Uh, I don't know Steinbrenner. You know, way back then. I mean, he he did so much in in bringing the Beatles here. I at the time, and you would know this uh, the answer to this question. But at the time that he was there, in retrospect, now now we could look back and say, of course, it was there. Was it a sure thing that they were going to be a hit, or we we weren't sure how they were going to do in America? Oh, no. Uh, I happened to, uh, before I met him, I happened to be working, as you know, I started in a warehouse in Chicago, and there was a uh, there was a stack of records uh, standing behind my desk. And uh, I looked at him, and I said to the person that owned the distributor, what's with these records? He says, ah, you know, he says, I bought them, and they gave me a deal where you buy uh, 10000 and you get 3000 free. They used to do that in those days when it was 45s. Yeah. Not the gun, as you and I know, Frank, the, the one with the big hole in the middle. Right. And uh, I had one of those old RCA Victrolas on my desk, and as curious, George, I am, I went and I took that record, I put it on, and it was on the Tolly label, and it was distributed by a company next door to me called VJ Records. Vivian and Jimmy, they owned a record store in Gary, Indiana, and they took on an unknown group uh, called The Impressions, and they signed a guy named Jerry Butler, and uh, they imported this record from England. And you know what that record was? Love Me Do. Wow. And, and they were just sitting there. And again, what I would love to have those. They were on the Tolly label, and it was the Beatles. And uh, I believe that it was Sid, and uh, it was one of the Beatles that came into Chicago, uh, or one of the people from Capitol Records, because Capitol took it on for distribution, uh, and put it on the number two at the time most powerful radio station in the United States, WLS. And the rest is history. They started playing that, and it went on WABC in New York, WMCA, KHJ in Los Angeles, and that started it. And Sid wanted to bring them to America long before they went on the Ed Sullivan Show, but uh, he had to have Brian Epstein's approval, and he had to have 
uh, the boys from Liverpool get visas and be able to come here. And Pan Am, I think Pan Am paid for the airfare because they wanted the promotion of bringing the Beatles out of Liverpool into New York. Uh, I happen to have still been in Chicago when they came here, and uh, nobody could anticipate, and there will never be another Beatles, uh, and there will never be another Sid Bernstein. Uh, he made he made this business fun. He made it easy to do business with him, and uh, when we took and signed the Rascals to Columbia, it was after they had the success with Atlantic, a lot of it had to do because of Sid Bernstein. Yeah, it's just it's it, it's an amazing story. I'm going to remind folks if you're just turning on your radio, or if you're just tuning in, you're hearing the voice of Ron Alexenberg, Ronnie Records, they call him, and, <laughs> and for good reason. And he is uh, he has signed so much uh, so much of the talent that uh, that we know, and it uh, and we and we take for granted that there was uh, there was some thought that was put into it. And Michael Jackson, of course, you're well known, and it was a, it, he was such a good friend. Uh, to you, and and certainly I mentioned Charlie Daniels, but that's uh, give us a little bit of a list. Frank McKay here with Ron Alexenberg. We're talking mainly about Sid Bernstein, but but Ron, give us a, a little bit of the list of, of the folks that you've worked with and that you signed. Well, we were we were we were a bunch of kids, uh, fortunate enough to be working at the CBS Records, Columbia and Epic Records, and uh, Clive Davis, who I happen to have been with yesterday. Uh, we were sitting and we were somewhat reminiscing like we're doing right now, but we were signing a lot of artists that uh, some other record companies had turned down that didn't really show an interest in. Uh, I'm proud to say that uh, we have the biggest debut album of a band ever, a group called Boston, and that triggered off uh, a follow-up from a band that was my first signing and bringing to Columbia was a band called Chicago, because I was from Chicago, and, uh, and Danny Serafin and and Jimmy Garcia had a club on the south side of Chicago called Beginnings. And uh, you know, Frank, that was the uh, first big hit. That was the title of the album. But it was the CTA, Chicago Transit Authority. We had to change the name. And I said, what do you mean change the name? I love the name. And they said, the city of Chicago owns the name CTA. So I said, well, I'll just call them Chicago. <laughs> wow. And I guess 50, 50 albums later, they've done okay. But wow. we were signing bands that uh, a lot of people weren't uh, interested in. Uh, one of them, uh, thank goodness, is going to be performing again. And he just did a brand new album, uh, which I have nothing to do with other than being a fan. And that's Mr. Loaf, Meatloaf. And uh, he just had a brand new album uh, choreographed with Jim Steinman, who's not in the best of health. We say our prayers for Jim, uh, but he and me hooked up, and uh, their new album, I think, is coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, we had Boston, and we signed a band called Kansas, and we were in kind of like a groove of signing states. And then we were fortunate enough when the Yardbirds broke up, I was able to get Jeff Beck, who I still think is one of the finest guitar players ever, and we were fortunate enough to sign phenomenal musicians. Jaco Pistorius, one of the greatest bass players that uh, was ever invented. Uh, and uh, we had a League of Nations, Tammy Wynette, George Jones. Um, and then being born and raised on the south side of Chicago, I loved rhythm and blues. And CBS really didn't have a lot of African-American artists at the time. You couldn't consider Johnny Mathis an R&B artist, uh, but uh, we became friendly, and I tried to get uh, Johnny to be produced by two guys I fell in love with called Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, 
and then spawned the OJs we signed, the Isley Brothers, uh, Teddy wow. Pendergrass, wow, wow. Harold Mellon and the Blue Notes, uh, Billy Paul had the biggest single today, I think, I'm not up on the current single figures in New York, but Billy Paul had Me and Mrs. Jones, which sold over 350,000 singles in New York alone. So we had, like, uh, the League of Nations, we had the greatest staff of people, uh, the youngest promotion staff. Uh, we would get in the office at 9 in the morning, and uh, my wife would say, when people said, what time does Ron come home for dinner? I said, he doesn't, and that took care of that. Uh, uh, but we loved what name, we did. You don't get the name Ronnie Records for nothing. Well, it, it was so interesting that you bring this up, and you're you're wonderful to do that. Uh, if you'll allow me, uh, I am still in the business. I love it. Uh, I'm just uh, in the process of finishing my book, which is called From the Warehouse to the Penthouse, which uh, I will get to you way ahead of time. Uh, there's going to be a TV show that is called Then and Now, which I'm going to interview you instead of you interviewing me. And uh, it talks about Then and Now. And uh, just recently, and it is on Showtime right now, uh, to accent your enthusiasm for my signing of Michael Jackson, Spike Lee called upon me, and we did from Motown to Off the Wall. Uh, from and uh, you know it started the Gamble and Huff, and then the Quincy Jones productions of uh, the biggest album ever. And uh, I'm now told, and Clive and I were talking about it yesterday, that uh, you have a guy on the phone with your listeners, and I thank you again for inviting me. That, that you can say he signed the Pope and he signed Michael Jackson. Because I did go to the Vatican and sign Pope John Paul, which was one of the biggest mistakes of my career. But I still believe in the man, of course. But the music didn't do too well, Frank, as you know. Yeah. But what, we was it music or was it, was it a, a speech? Was it his speeches? What was the... Uh... No, it was songs that he sang from the Sacrosong Festival in Krakow, Poland. And if you know, being a promotion man, when I heard about it, uh, 11 record companies were outbidding me, and I grabbed a wonderful lawyer by the name of Peter Shukat, God rest his soul, who was a phenomenal attorney representing Yoko and John and Jimi Hendrix. And I asked him if he wanted uh, Italian food because that was my favorite. Uh, he said, sure, let's go. And he always thought I was going to take him out to Ozone Park. And what we did is we got in the car, and we drove, and we made a left-hand turn to JFK. He said, where are we going? I said, we're going for Italian food. We ended up going to Rome for dinner. <laughs> And we got off the plane, and he says, you know, you're nuts. I said, yes, I am, but I'm going to go and make this deal. And there was an album being played at WPZ in Boston, The Power of Radio. To me, Frank, still, anybody with, a, with an antenna is important, trust me. Yeah. And uh, WB, WBZ in Boston, the Cosmic Muffin, uh, gave me this cassette of Pope John Paul. And uh, we went into the Vatican with a business card and said, I'd like to meet the Pope. And they looked at me like I had three heads. And they said, uh, well, you're going to have to go back to where you're from. And I said, well, I happen to have White House clearance. Does that help? And they went, yeah, but you're going to have to get cleared in 24 hours. Long story short, I got to meet the Pope. I asked him his plans. He said he's coming to the United States to tour. How about that for a word? Wow. Pope touring. So we made a Pope on tour jackets, which I have one. And uh, I asked him to try it on when he was in New York walking around St. Pat's, and he did. And I have his DNA in a tour jacket, <laughs> Pope on Tour in 1979. But, you know, getting back to a guy like Sid Bernstein, Sid called me when that happened, and he said, you've out-promoted me. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I got the Beatles, and you got the Pope. <laughs> and I said, well, listen, yeah, 
I think uh, you did a little bit better than I did, but it was on Infinity Records, and uh, uh, after he had passed away, unfortunately, MCA scrapped the albums, and we made a million of them. I thought it was going to be the biggest Christmas gift ever, and it wasn't because the music really wasn't that great. But he gave speeches, as you know, and he toured. But getting back to Sid Bernstein, there's a story that uh, hit the CBS building that Sid would walk in, and he always had, like, an old uh, Jewish professor. He would have little things of candy that he would give the secretaries. He was the most like individual to get off that elevator in the CBS building. That's a statement that I can't make about too many people because they were usually coming at us and telling us, well, we didn't do this, we didn't do that, we didn't do this. Yet Sid would come in with a smile on his face and uh, just ask how things are going. Uh, he was liked and loved by everybody. I had 14 secretaries working with me on the 13th floor of the CBS building. He would stop and say hello, Frank, to everyone by name. Wow. Yeah, it's I, I had chills meeting the guy just uh, because of the the legend that surrounds him, what the legend that he helped create and bringing the Beatles over here. And and again, if you're just tuning in or just turning on your radio, Frank McKay here, but much more importantly, Ron Alexenberg, record executive Ron Alexenberg. And and right after the break, we got a couple minutes left with Ron. Right after the break, we'll hear that interview that I did with Sid Bernstein. And again, it's. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a couple of years back and unfortunately we, uh, we lost him, uh, you know, not too long ago. And, and it's, uh, it's great to, to be a little part of that history. And, uh, had, a, I had a chance to meet him and you're right. What a nice, nice man, Sid Bernstein, who of course brought the Beatles here. Uh, what else could you point to that people would, uh, would remember about Bernstein? And I don't mean personality wise, but, uh, you know, you know, if you were laying out his credentials, if you were laying out his resume, uh, it doesn't seem like he needs much more than the Beatles. But there, there is a lot more than the Beatles, and people here in the interview, he had a lot to do with the, with a, bringing a lot of bands to stage and to, uh, you know, to to prominence. Well, they they invented the public venues. Uh, you know, there wouldn't have been uh, if it's not for Sid Bernstein and uh, you know uh, people. Uh, that recognized him being in New York, uh, there wouldn't be a Ron Delsner. Uh, you know, there wouldn't be a Live Nation. There wouldn't be an AG. There would, all these things started with people like Sid and Jerry Weintraub at Concerts West and and uh, featuring these artists in the biggest venues. Uh, you can only imagine uh, what this uh, Coachella now would have been like in Sid's day when you could put these bands together. Imagine what the Beatles would do. I mean, yes, McCartney's going to be in India, but can you imagine uh, a guy like Sid bringing somebody in the biggest event, was biggest venue was Shea Stadium? Well, you'd need about six Shea Stadiums for them right now. Yeah, or you'd need a, a month, and you'd sell out every single one of them. But, you know, you, you bring back such great memories. I remember introducing you, and you're gracious as always, and we sat down at Ohika in Gary's big dining room, and you asked, you asked me, can I get him something to eat? And I said, be careful. And during your entire interview, uh, he was sitting there uh, fressing, as we say, and you marveled at the mannerism and the way he was so polite. You did. You said to me, this is one of the most polite people I've ever met. 
Well, humble, you know, and and again, we got about two minutes yeah. left with with Ron Alexenberg, and he's got a resume a mile long in, in the record business and the music business, and we we'd need a whole you know three hours to talk <laughs> talk to him. His show, right. his his uh, his book, I should say, will be out soon, and it's from the warehouse to the penthouse, and he uh, and that's literal. He started out in the warehouse. Yeah, that's where I started. Yep. No doubt about it. Frank McKay here, thrilled to be with Ron Alexenberg, and we're talking about the late, great Sid Bernstein. And, and again, his interview will follow uh, the commercials coming back. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, one of the last interviews. i got to look, look up to see if it's not the last interview, but it could be. Uh, hey, Ron, in closing, in closing, uh, what, do you, what comes to mind? What's your lasting impressions of, of your relationship and, and the man, Sid Bernstein? Sitting down at a restaurant and having him describe what we're about to eat and saying to me, you know, uh, I think we should, after we have the main course, go to Pumpernick's and have some ice cream because Elton told me about a certain ice cream that's over there. That was the kind of thing we would talk about. And you know that Elton was Elton John. Yeah. Wow. Right, people, yeah. Would, people, would call him, people would call him and say, real quick, where should I go and eat? And he would describe things and he would describe the menu for them. Frank, I want to thank you for reminiscing, and I want to thank you and wishing you and your family the best of health and happiness always. Same to you, Ron, as always, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Ron Alexenberg has been our very special guest. Ronnie Records, they call him, and his resume is a mile long, uh, 10 miles long, and everyone from Michael Jackson to Chicago to Boston. Uh, it, it sounds like a geography lesson as, as much as a history <laughs> And Boston, Chicago, Kansas, Meatloaf, everyone you could imagine. Ron Alexenberg, and we've been talking about the late, great Sid Bernstein, Frank McKay here. But more importantly, when we come back, we'll be back with uh, possibly the last interview with the late, great promoter, brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium, brought them over to America, Sid Bernstein. We'll be back after this. What was your early beginning, the earliest beginning that you could remember where you decided, I'm going into the music business? I lived in Harlem. My father owned a little tailor shop in Harlem. My father was very generous with me, allowed me spending money and sp really spoiled me. Uh, the kids around me were, at that time, were getting a nickel, a dime a day. <laughs> My father gave me a quarter a day. Mm. And at that time, I used to use that quarter a day to go to bakeries. I was always a food buff, always a food buff. There was one bakery called Cushman's Bakery. You're too young to remember that. Yes. That had the best crawlers the best jelly donuts. And I mentioned to someone sitting next to me, it's the best one I ever had. And this couple, black couple, said, no, there's a better one. And they took me to one right in the middle of Black Harlem. And there was this place that was so fantastic that I kept coming back and back and back. And then coming back, the theater next to this bakery 
had pictures of performers, dancers, singers, musicians. And I asked the people sitting next to me, is it expensive? No. At your age, you can get in for 10 cents. But you have to have an adult take you in. How old were you? So the next time I came, I asked an adult, black lady, would she take me in? I have the money for it. And she took me in. And I heard my first band. Was this the Apollo Theater? Yeah, the Apollo Theater. Who was the band? And I heard the band, and it was just sensational. The dancing girls, they had a little chorus. Of, that didn't knock me out. There was a comic called Pygmy, the black, very funny man. I was hysterical laughing. And then there was a lady comic, Mom's Mabley, mm. hysterical. And I laughed. I said, I got to come back here every week. Every week they had another show. What uh, year was that? Oh, my God. <laughs> had to be about 19 1909. A lot of history there. Yeah, about 1908, 1909. Can you imagine that it's still and, there? And I came back week after week, week after week, and I heard music. Musicians, about 14, 15 men playing. And I loved the music. I said, when I grow up, this is what I want to work at. And that's where it started. How old were you in 1909? 92. No, well, you're 92 now. How old were you in 1909? Do you remember? How'd about, you first about eight. <laughs> about eight years old. Eight or nine, yeah. When did you decide, well, I mean, you decided then, but when did you actually promote your first concert, manage your first, what was your first job in the music? My business? first concert, actually, was when I graduated public school. There was a yearbook with the pictures, as in most yearbooks, of everybody that graduated in my term. Got it? Yeah. With their address and a picture of each student that graduated. My first promotion was writing postcards to every one of my yearbook. And a crowd turned out. And I made a few bucks. So I found a yearbook before then, and the one after. I sent postcards to them, and the place wasn't big enough. So I went to a bigger place, the Hunts Point Palace, rather than the gym. In the Bronx? In the Bronx, right. And so I became a promoter. Mm. I was making more money than my father, who was a good tailor, who worked all his time as a tailor, sewing clothes. I said, why are you making more money than my father? He wanted me to be a tailor, or a doctor, or a lawyer. And I said, no, I'm making more money than these people that, that I knew as lawyers, doctors, as a promoter. And I just kept building and building. And then I went to Latin music. From Latin music, I grew as a promoter there. After Latin music, 
I got into jazz. After jazz, I got into pop music, rock and roll music. Who were some of the jazz names you worked with? Pardon? Who were some of the famous jazz performers you worked with? Parker? Did you? I had them all. I had them all. Just an amazing history I had lesson. Them all. Pardon? Amazing history lesson here. Yeah. You're a living, breathing museum. You've read my book? Yes, I have. Very proudly. Mm. But the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I said to you, you've, you're having a great career. Not Pardon? that you've had a great career. You've had, you're having a great career. You're continuing. I'm it. going back to work soon. In about a month, my doctor, who's Arabic, <laughs> when I met him, I said, sir, doctor, what's your name? He says, uh, Muhammad, I want to blah, blah. I says, Muhammad? Where are you from? He says, I'm Arabic, and I'm from Lebanon. <laughs> he says, you're from Lebanon, and you're Arabic? I says, my name, this is the first one they introduced me to. I says, my name is Sid Bernstein, and I'm from Harlem, and I'm Jewish. Are you here, doctor, to kill me or <laughs> to cure me? That went around the whole hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody heard that story. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. How do you go from the He's I'm here to help you, and he's helping. This foot is al almost better. It was water, water, circulation. Is it the knee or the foot? What is it? Water, without doubt. Yeah. Let me ask you this. We're with the great Sid Bernstein, the legend of all music promoters. He has worked with, everyone knows you for bringing the Beatles to America, the first man to bring the Beatles to America to start Beatlemania and it just took off like you wouldn't believe. It's worked with Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. How do you go from the Apollo Theater as an eight-year-old falling in love with the scene to dancing with Judy Garland in our dressing room, if I remember correctly? Judy Garland was my all-time favorite, by the way. All-time favorite. You were very close to her? Pardon? Were you close to her? I got close. Her managers, I won't mention their names, because one of them is still living. Her managers were not handling her right. Got it? Yep. They were cheating her. How did she end I up? I felt so sorry for her, because when I met her, she was on, on booze, on drugs. other things. Right. I felt sorry for her. But when she and the managers and I helped her up the steps of the stage, she had already had, he's asking me a Judy Garland question. She had already finished half of her bottle of liqueur that she ordered. It was one of the things she wanted, red carpets, Yellow toilet paper, <laughs> yellow tissue toilet paper, <laughs> and a bottle of, it was a German liqueur with a branch in it. I forgot the name of it. There was a branch in it. By the time she was ready to go in, she had finished half of that bottle of liqueur. Mm. She couldn't get up the few steps, and the managers and I often had to help her up. 
But the minute that pin spot hit her face, she became the Judy Garland. She was a star. She was my all-time favorite. All-time favorite. How about Elvis? I was. I'm, I'm sitting also next to the wonderful Joey Reynolds, <laughs> radio and TV star. Was another one of my great, not only stars in what he does, but one of my very great friends. How long do you go back? You too. A long time. We're here with Sid Bernstein and Joey Reynolds, and I'm gonna ask you a few questions in a little bit too. I, I do wanna ask uh, about Elvis Presley. You worked with Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, I met him through a, a fellow that I worked with as president of his company. He was the chairman. His name is Jerry Weintraub. Mm. We worked together for, for a while. So I met Elvis Presley because Jerry Weintraub was taking him on tours and promotions, and that's how I met Elvis Presley. Great artist, great artist. Going back a little further, who was your mentor? Pardon? Did you have a mentor in the music business, in the promotional game? Mm -hmm. Just the sound of music, really. Just the sound of music. He's lying. Who does he got? <laughs> You're Wall being called Sinkfield. on this. Is Wall that true? Ziegfeld and P.T. Barnum. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever get to meet uh, Flo Ziegfeld? Was he? Did I ever get to meet who? What, did he pass away before? Yeah. yeah. That was a long time. I know P.T. Barnum. But you're being compared to some legends there. And well, you're a legendary man. Billy Rose <laughs> was a tiny little man. Ziegfeld was Flo brilliant. Ziegfeld. Yeah. I had the... When did Ziegfeld die? When did Flo Ziegfeld die? I, I just don't remember that. But did you... Well, I met him briefly. You did? Okay. Yeah. Mm. Billy Rose briefly. Bright little man. Super bright man. So how about the Beatles? And Colonel oh. Parker, Time Parker, Tom Parker. When did you meet him? You met him through Elvis. Through Elvis, yes. Totally brilliant. For some reason, we became, at first, I didn't like him. I thought he was an ego, maniacal kind of guy. But when I realized the problems that he had with Elvis would already, by the time I got to work with Elvis, who had already lost a lot of his talent, strength, because of bad habits. But from Colonel Parker, who often took me to lunch, I learned so many things. Giving an example, what did Colonel Parker teach you? One of the things he did, one of the things, when I went to lunch with him, one of the things he did, if we were doing a stadium or a facility, large, he'd go the day before, he'd count all the seats that came through the manifest. But when we went back to play on those occasions 
that were important when we went back to play there. He says, Sidney, now look, remember? I took you to count the seats. Now over there, there was an empty space. There's 24 seats now there. His mind was unbelievable. And he'd go to the promoter and said, you made a mistake. That's all he said. You you short-changed Elvis. And I heard this. By 24 seats. And he'd make the promoter pay. Mm. Instead of giving out pictures, he says, Sidney, you don't give them out anymore. You sell them. In those days, a dollar was a lot of money for a, a picture. <laughs> He'd sell a, he himself would sell the pictures, so he didn't have to give the union any money. That's amazing. What a, what but, a history lesson But the things here. he taught me were so unique, no one would think of it but the colonel. We're sitting with the great Sid Bernstein, the promoter extraordinaire, as you said, 92 years old, and 92 years young, I should say, and his dear friend Joey Reynolds, who we're going to speak to in a little bit. But let me get to the big question. I'm sure you hear this a million times. The Beatles. You brought the Beatles to America. You promoted the Shea Stadium. You have to read my book, okay? Well, I did. Or reread it, Maybe some people... It's too good a story. (laughs) Well, I will, but for those who don't have I can only tell you. Again, Lady Luck raised her hand, or the man upstairs raised his hand and said, this is what you must do. I never heard a note that they played. Got that? Yeah. But I was reading. And we're not be here long enough to tell you the whole story. You have to read my book. I have. (laughs) But for those who haven't. Read it again. (laughs) Let me ask you this. I don't know uh, how private you are. I got the number. of the four boys that I had been reading about when I was a soldier. I spent a lot of time before going into tougher places where you had to kill or be killed, okay? It was a British soldier, a British soldier who saved my life when I went up the beaches, okay? Were you in Normandy? It was along Normandy coast. That's what I recall. Yeah. Saved my life. But I'd fallen in love with England. The language. I lost my Bronx accent. I started speaking English (laughs) properly. You think you lost your Bronx accent. (laughs) (laughs) I started speaking English properly. And when I came home, as I told you earlier, my father wanted me to be a tailor, which was his profession. I'm repeating myself here. That's all right. I didn't want to be a tailor. My father wanted me a lawyer or a doctor, which is what kids my age I was related to or that I grew up with, outside of the black kids that I grew up with. I grew up in a biracial neighborhood in Harlem, 
Black, mainly, and Jewish. I don't know how private you are about things like this. You, do you remember how much money you made off of the Shea Stadium concert? Not too much. It wasn't too much? <laughs> I charged 350, 450, and 550. That was the prevailing price time at that time. Yeah, you didn't realize you could have got a lot more. The box office it. guy said, Sid, if you belong, Sidney, if you belong, if you think this is gonna they're gonna be stars, he'd not heard about them yet. He says, gotta charge top dollar. Mr. Mr. Resnick, that was his name. An old gentleman. He was the dean of a box office then. Dean. Considered the best box office man in Manhattan, Carnegie Hall. She got to charge top price, 350, 450, and 550. And that's what I charged. Was Shea Stadium your first choice? Pardon? Was Shea Stadium your first choice? No, actually, it was. The public schools, where I did the yearbook thing. No, I, no, that I, you misunderstood. Shea Stadium was not. Carnegie Hall was the first place. You wanted to go to Carnegie Hall. Why did you decide 2, not to? Twenty-eight hundred and thirty seats. Oh, too many, too few seats. We sold that out quickly. Yeah. When Ed Sullivan found that a guy in New York had the first date on the Beatles. He had his secretary call me, Mr. Bernstein, Ed would like to know why you made a deal with the Beatles. They weren't getting any airplay. I said, tell Ed they're a phenomenon. I hadn't heard them, but I've been reading about them. I was watching their progress through the same British papers that I continued to read when I came home in one piece, back to my family, my mother and father and grandma, I kept reading English newspapers. I read them at the right time. The first notice in the American papers finally was one inch long, one inch wide. My my eye caught it because it was an airmail edition. You couldn't get English newspapers. So I went to the out-of-town newsstand to pursue my love for England, to find out what was going on there. And so the, the first item that I read during one of the weekly papers I pick up at the out-of-town newsstand at 42nd Street and 6th Avenue, still there, was one inch long, one inch column wide talked about four kids with long hair creating a star in their native town. Now you got the book. Now you got the movie. It's going to be a movie. There are people after the, the book for a movie. Probably be a movie. An amazing moment in time. How do you follow up the Beatles? What do you do after that concert? I'll tell you. But I'm not going to tell you yet why. Because you want everyone to read the book and buy the book. The best is yet to come. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first concert? So if the lunch is good, I, I may just give you a hint. Okay? All right, good. You know what? We'll, do, we'll stop there. We'll have a little lunch, and then we'll come back. Okay. But thank you. I appreciate Joey your time. Joey has an appointment with his d 
daughter, so we can't be here as long as you, you would like. You should bring her here. Is she close by? No, she's in New York. She's, a, she's in Manhattan. So let's let's go eat, gentlemen. Again, we're with the. Let me also tell you. Yes. This gentleman here. Why do I call him when I speak about him? One of my great, really great, and dear friends. Because when I found a young group called the Rascals, wow. nobody knew about them. I happened to hear them. I said, this is a big one. You're I right. flew up to Buffalo where he was born and where he was a young DJ creating a stir in that part of the country. I needed, when Billboard was picking hit records, the top 100, I needed a station that had a history for creating hits. I found that this young guy, might have been 18 or 19, probably 18 or 17, his name was Joey Reynolds. I flew up there, brought him a copy of this brand new record. Joey Reynolds was the first man I went to. I flew up, even though I knew the guys in New York, Cousin Brucey, uh, the Fifth Beetle. <laughs> what was his name Murray again? Murray the K. Murray the K. <laughs> Murray the K. Although I knew them, I flew up to see this young guy because I needed his station and his what reputation. He put it on the air. Before I even got back to New York, I flew up there. Before I was home, this wonderful man. This is the Young Rascals you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Put that record on the air. And you broke the young grasses. Very good. Very That's impressive. why he was a great disc jockey. He listened to the record. He introduced more hits. That's very accurate. No payola. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my next question. Come on, Frank. No money. So his this. new career is about to start. So is mine. Sounds and great. I'll tell you how if I like the lunch. All right, good. So hopefully you'll like the lunch. Again, we're with Sid Bernstein, the legend, the legend Sid Bernstein. Actually, it's hard to think of who would fall in a category with you at this point. I can't even think Thank of you. who would be there. So it's an honor. And Joey Reynolds will hopefully get a few minutes with a little later. Let's go eat. Let's go eat, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time, and we'll be back with you. Again, this is Frank McKay with the Voice of Independence. Thanks for a nice interview. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sid Marcy. Breaking it down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. Uh, what was your early beginning, the earliest beginning that you could remember where you decided? I'm going into the music business. I lived in Harlem. My father owned a little tailor shop in Harlem. My father was very generous with me. Allowed me spending money and sp really spoiled me 
the kids around me were at that time were getting a nickel, a dime a day. <laughs> My father gave me a quarter a day. Mm. And at that time, I used to use that quarter a day to go to bakeries. I was always a food buff, always a food buff. There was one bakery called Cushman's Bakery. You're too young to remember that. Yes. That had the best crullers, the best jelly donuts. And I mentioned to someone sitting next to me, it's the best one I ever had. And this couple, black couple, said, no, there's a better one. And they took me to one right in the middle of Park Harlem. And there was this place that was so fantastic that I kept coming back and back and back. And then coming back, the theater next to this bakery had pictures of performers, dancers, singers, musicians, and I asked the people sitting next to me, is it expensive? No. At your age, you can get in for 10 cents. But you have to have an adult take you in. How old were you? So the next time I came, I asked an adult, black lady, would she take me in? I have the money for it. And she took me in. And I heard my first band. Was this the Apollo Theater? Yeah, the Apollo Theater. Who was the band? And I heard the band, and it was just sensational. The dancing girls, they had a little chorus of, that didn't knock me out. There was a comic called Pygmy, the very funny man. I was hysterical laughing. And then there was a lady comic, Mom's Mabley. Mm. Hysterical. And I laughed. I said, I got to come back here every week. Every week they had another show. What year was that? Oh, my God. <laughs> had to be about 1909. A lot of history there. Yeah, about 1909. Can you imagine that it's still and there? And I came back week after week week after week, and I heard music. Musicians, about 14, 15 men playing, and I loved the music. I said, when I grow up, this is what I want to work at, and that's where it started. How old were you in 1909? 92. No, well, you're 92 now. How old were you in 1909? Do you remember? About, Your freshman? about eight. <laughs> about eight years old. Eight or nine, yeah. When did you decide, well, I mean, you decided then, but when did you actually promote your first concert, manage your first, what was your first job in the music My business? first concert, actually, was when I graduated public school. There was a yearbook with the pictures, as in your, most yearbooks, of everybody that graduated in my term. Got it? Yeah with their address and a picture of each student that graduated. My first promotion was writing postcards 
to everyone in my yearbook. And a crowd turned out. And I made a few bucks. So I found a yearbook before then. And the one after. I sent postcards to them. And the place wasn't big enough. So I went to a bigger place, the Hunts Point Palace, rather than the gym. In the Bronx? In the Bronx, right. And so I became a promoter. Mm. I was making more money than my father, who was a good tailor, who worked all his time as a tailor, sewing clothes. I said, why is he making more money than my father? He wanted me to be a tailor, or a doctor, or a lawyer. And I said, no. I'm making more money than these people that, that I knew as lawyers, doctors, as a promoter. And I just kept building and building. And then I went to Latin music. From Latin music, I grew as a promoter there. After Latin music, I got into jazz. After jazz, I got into pop music, rock and roll music. Who were some of the jazz names you worked with? Pardon? Who were some of the famous jazz performers you worked with? Parker? Did you? I had them all. I had them all. Just an amazing history I had lesson. Them all. Pardon? Amazing history lesson here. Yeah. You're a living, breathing museum. You've read my book? Yes, I have. Very proudly. Mm. But the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I said to you, you've, you're having a great career. Not Pardon? that you had a great career. You've had, you're having a great career. You're continuing. I'm it. going back to work soon. In about a month, my doctor, who's Arabic, <laughs> when I met him, I said, sir, doctor, what's your name? He says, uh, Muhammad. I says, Muhammad? Where are you from? He says, I'm Arabic, and I'm from Lebanon. <laughs> I says, you're from Lebanon, and you're Arabic? I says, my name, this is the first one they introduced me to. I says, my name is Sid Bernstein, and I'm from Harlem, and I'm Jewish. Are you here, doctor, to kill me <laughs> or to cure me? <laughs> that went around the whole hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody heard that story. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. How do you go from the... He's I'm here to help you. And he's helping. This foot is al almost better. It was water. Water, circulation. Is it the knee or the foot? What is it? Water. Down. Yeah. Let me ask you this. We're with the great Sid Bernstein, the legend of all music promoters. He has worked with... Everyone knows you for bringing the Beatles to America. The first man to bring the Beatles to America to start Beatlemania and it just took off like you wouldn't believe. It's worked with Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. How do you go from the Apollo Theater as an eight-year-old falling in love with the scene to dancing with Judy Garland in our dressing room, if I remember correctly? Judy Garland was my all-time favorite, by the way. All-time favorite. You were very close to her? Pardon? Were you close to her? I got close. Our managers, I won't mention their names, because one of them is still living. Our managers were not handling her right. 
Got it? Yep. They were cheating her. How did she end I up? I felt so no. sorry for her. Of course, when I met her, she was on, on booze, on Drugs. other things. Right. I felt sorry for her. But when she and the managers and I helped her up the steps of the stage, she had already had He's asking me a Judy Garland question. She had already finished half of her bottle of liqueur that she ordered. It was one of the things she wanted. Red carpets, yellow toilet paper, <laughs> yellow tissue toilet paper, <laughs> and a bottle of, it was a German liqueur with a branch in it. I forgot the name of it. There was a branch in it. By the time she was ready to go in, she had finished half of that bottle of liquor. Mm. She couldn't get up the few steps, and the managers and I often had to help her up. But the minute that pin spot hit her face, she became the Judy Garland. She was a star. She was my all-time favorite. All-time favorite. How about Elvis? I was. I'm I'm sitting also next to the wonderful Joey Reynolds, <laughs> radio and TV star. Was another one of my great, not only stars in what he does, but one of my very great friends. How long do you go back? You two? A long time. We're here with Sid Bernstein and Joey Reynolds, and I'm going to ask you a few questions in a little bit, too. I, I do want to ask uh, about Elvis Presley. You worked with Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley... I met him through a, a fellow that I worked with as president of his company. He was the chairman. His name is Jerry Weintraub. Mm. We worked together for, for a while. So I met Elvis Presley because Jerry Weintraub was taking him on tours and promotions, and that's how I met Elvis Presley. Great artist, great artist. Going back a little further, who was your mentor? Pardon? Did you have a mentor in the music business, in the promotional game? Mm -hmm. Just the sound of music, really. Just the sound of music. He's lying. Who does he got? <laughs> You're Rose being called Eggfield. on this. Is Paul that true? Ziegfeld and P.T. Barnum. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever get to meet uh, Flo Ziegfeld? Was he? Did I ever get to meet who? What, did he pass away before? <laughs> yeah. That was a long time. I know P.T. Barnum. Yeah. But it, you're being compared to some legends there. And, well, you're a legendary Billy man. Billy Rose <laughs> was a tiny little man. Ziegfeld was Flo brilliant. Ziegfeld. Yeah. I had the... When did Ziegfeld die? When did Flo Ziegfeld die? I, I just don't remember that. But did you? Well, I met him briefly. You did? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Billy Rose briefly. Bright little man. Super bright man. So how about the Beatles? And Colonel oh. Parker, Time Parker, Tom Parker. When did you meet him? You met him through Elvis. Through Elvis, yes. Totally brilliant. For some reason, we became, at first, I didn't like him. I thought he was an egomaniacal kind of guy. But when I realized 
the problems that he had with Elvis would already, by the time I got to work with Elvis, who had already lost a lot of his talent, strength, because of bad habits. But from Colonel Parker, who often took me to lunch, I learned so many things. Giving an example, what did Colonel Parker teach you? One of the things he did, one of the things, when I went to lunch with him, one of the things he did, if we were doing a stadium or a facility, large, he'd go the day before, he'd count all the seats that came through the manifest. But when we went back to play on those occasions that were important, when we went back to play there, he says, Sidney, now look, remember? I took you to count the seats. Now over there, there was an empty space. There's 24 seats down there. His mind was unbelievable. And he'd go to the promoter and said, you've made a mistake. That's all he said. You short-changed Elvis. And I heard this. By 24 seats. And he'd make the promoter pay. Mm. Instead of giving out pictures, he says, Sidney, you don't give them out anymore. You sell them. In those days, a dollar was a lot of money for a, a picture. <laughs> He'd sell the, he himself would sell the pictures, so he didn't have to give the union any money. That's amazing. What a, what but, a history lesson But the things here. he taught me were so unique. No one would think of it but the colonel. We're sitting with the great Sid Bernstein, the promoter extraordinaire, as you said, 92 years old, and 92 years young, I should say, and his dear friend Joey Reynolds, who we're going to speak to in a little bit. But let me get to the big question. I'm sure you hear this a million times. The Beatles. You brought the Beatles to America. You promoted the Shea Stadium. You to have to read concert. my book, okay? No, well, I did. But I'll reread it. Maybe okay? some people. It's too good a story. <laughs> well, I will, but for those who don't I have I can only tell you. Again, Lady Luck raised her hand, or the man upstairs raised his hand and said, this is what you must do. I never heard a note that they played. Got that? Yeah. But I was reading. And we're not be, be here long enough to tell you all, the whole story. You have to read my book. I, I have. <laughs> but for those who haven't. Read it again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. I don't know if, uh, it, how private you I got the number. of the four boys that I had been reading about. When I was a soldier, I spent a lot of time before going into tougher places where you had to kill or be killed, okay? It was a British soldier 
a British soldier who saved my life when I went up the beaches, okay? Were you in Normandy? It was along Normandy coast. That's what I recall. Yeah, saved my life. But I'd fallen in love with England, the language. I lost my Bronx accent. I started to speak English <laughs> you, you think you lost your Bronx accent. <laughs> <laughs> I started to speak English properly. And when I came home, as I told you earlier, my father wanted me to be a tailor, which was his profession. I'm repeating myself here. That's all right. I didn't want to be a tailor. My father wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor, which is what kids my age I was related to or that I grew up with outside of the black kids that I grew up with. I grew up in a biracial neighborhood in Harlem, black mainly, and Jewish. I don't know how private you are about things like this. You, do you remember how much money you made off of the Shea Stadium concert? Not too much. It wasn't too much? <laughs> I charged 350, 450, and 550. That was the prevailing price time at that time. Yeah, you didn't realize you could have got a lot when of The box office it. guy said, Sid, if you belong, Sidney, if you belong, if you think this is going to, they're going to be stars, he'd not heard about them yet. He says, got to charge top dollar. Mr. Mr. Resnick, that was his name, an old gentleman. He was the dean of do box office men. Dean. Considered the best box office man in Manhattan, Carnegie Hall. She got to charge top price, 350, 450, and 550. And that's what I charged. Was Shea Stadium your first choice? Pardon? Was Shea Stadium your first choice? No, actually, it was the public schools where I did the yearbook thing. No, I, no, that, I, you misunderstood. Shea Stadium was not. Carnegie Hall was the first place. You wanted to go to Carnegie Hall. Why did you decide 2, not to? 2,830 seats. Oh, too many, too few seats. We sold that out quickly. Yeah. When Ed Sullivan found that a guy in New York had the first date on the Beatles. He had his secretary call me. Mr. Bernstein, Ed would like to know why you made a deal with the Beatles. They weren't getting any airplay. I said, tell Ed they're a phenomenon. I hadn't heard them but I've been reading about them. I was watching their progress through the same British papers that I continued to read when I came home in one piece, back to my family, my mother and father and grandma. I kept reading English newspapers. I read them at the right time. The first notice in the American papers finally was one inch long, one inch wide. My, my eye caught it because it was an airmail edition. You couldn't get English newspapers. 
So I went to the out-of-town newsstand to pursue my love for England, to find out what was going on there. And so the, the first item that I read during one of the weekly papers I pick up at the out-of-town newsstand at 42nd Street and 6th Avenue, still there, was one inch long, one inch column wide. Talked about four kids with long hair creating a star in their native town. Now you got the book. Now you got the movie. It's gonna be a movie. There are people after the, the book for a movie. Probably be a movie. An amazing moment in time. How do you follow up the Beatles? What do you do after that concert? I'll tell you. But I'm not gonna tell you yet why. Because you want everyone to read the book and buy the book. The best is yet to come. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> What was your first concert? So if the lunch is good, I, I may just give you a hint. Okay? All right, good. You know what we'll do? We'll stop there. We'll have a little lunch, and then we'll come back. Okay. But thank you. I appreciate Joey your time. Joey has an appointment with his d daughter, so we can't be here as long as you, you would like. You should bring her here. here. Is she close by? Uh, she's in New York. Right? She's, a, she's in Manhattan. So let's, let's go eat, gentlemen. Again, we're with the... Let me also tell you. Yes. This gentleman here. Why do I call him when I speak about him? One of my great, really great, and dear friends. Because when I found a young group called the Rascals, wow. nobody knew about them. I happened to hear them. I said, this is a big one. You're I right. flew up to Buffalo where he was born and where he was a young DJ creating a stir in that part of the country. I needed, when Billboard was picking hit records, the top 100, I needed a station that had a history for creating hits. I found that this young guy, might have been 18 or 19, probably 18 or 17, his name was Joey Reynolds. I flew up there, brought him a copy of this brand new record. Joey Reynolds was the first man I went to. I flew up, even though I knew the guys in New York. Cousin Brucie. Bruce Morrow. Uh, the Fifth Beatle. <laughs> what was his name Murray again? Murray the K. Murray the K. <laughs> Murray the K. Although I knew them, I flew up to see this young guy because I needed his station and his what reputation. He put it on the air. Before I even got back to New York, I flew up there. Before I was home, this wonderful man. This is the Young Rascals you're talking yeah, about. Put that record on the air. And you broke the Young Rascals. Very good. Very That's impressive. why he was a great disc jockey. He listened to the record. He introduced more hits. That's very accurate. No payola. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my next question. Come on, Frank. No money. So his this. new career is about to start. So is mine. Sounds and great. I'll tell you how if I like the lunch. All right, good. So hopefully you'll like the lunch. Again, we're with Sid Bernstein, the legend the legend 
Sid Bernstein. Actually, it's hard to think of who would fall in a category with you at this point. I can't even think Thank of you. who would be there. So it's an honor. And Joey Reynolds will hopefully get a few minutes with uh, a little later. Let's go eat. Mm. Let's go eat, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time, and we'll be back with you. Again, this is Frank McKay with the Voice of Independence. Thanks for a nice interview. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sid Bernstein.